in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. These two verses there. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. It's difficult to uh, take these words so that they're part of a massive sentence that Paul has at the beginning of this letter, but they're very condensed in what they're trying to teach, and, and for us to understand them, sometimes it's, it's really difficult. And I was trying to think the best way to, to kind of introduce this, and I wish I could do this. I don't. There's a YouTube clip you can get of um, an, a spoof advert for a Christian album, and the album is called It's All About Me, and it's got such songs in it as um, It's All About Me, or the classic I Exalt Me, or there is none like me, or I am why I sing, or oh come let us adore me. And the guy plays this on the piano. It's actually very funny, uh, a spoof. And sadly, there's just a huge element of truth in that sometimes in the church that, that's, and not just in the church, but elsewhere, we focus incredibly on ourselves, what we get, what we receive. And I, I find that myself. I mean, um, most normal human beings think that they are the most interesting topic of conversation because that's why we talk about ourselves so much. But it is not, of course, all about us. It is about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I hope that as we look at this, that whatever your personal circumstances, you may be here, you may be a Christian, and things are going great. You may be a Christian, things are really tough. You're confused and hurt and wounded. You may not be a Christian and wonder what all this is about. I hope that for all of us, we will see that, of course, what we feel and who we are is very, very important, but it can, should only be seen in the more important thing, the light of who God is, who Jesus Christ is especially, and what He has done. We need the right vision. There's a great book by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy, and I'm reading it again just now, and he has a, a, a great, lots of great insights, and one of them is this. He talks about progress, and he says, actually, in our culture and in our society, we don't make progress because uh, we, we misunderstand what progress is. He says this, progress should mean that we are always changing the world to suit the vision. Sadly, today, Progress means just that we are always changing the vision. In other words, the society, the culture, and so on, so many things stay the same. We just adapt our vision to suit what is around us. And that happens in the church. That happens with us as Christians as well. And I want to suggest to you that we need to get the vision right, and we need the big vision, the big picture, and then we adapt how we think in our circumstances to that. Now, in these verses, just in these two verses, Paul is writing to a church in Turkey. He is writing to a church that has grown tremendously well. It's in the midst of a very hostile situation, and uh, he's writing to thank God for the Christians and to encourage them. And in particular, he's wanting to assure them that they have been chosen by God for a particular purpose. Incidentally, his Grammar here, even in the original Greek, and his style is 
is bad in a literary style, but his, his emotion and his appreciation of God's purposes are great. So that's what we're going to look at. And just I'm going to look at three things uh, very simply, and I hope briefly. Firstly, God's plan. What is going to happen? In the verses before, it says that God has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. God's plan is to bring everything together in terms of Christ. It's Paul here is looking at the massive, massive picture of what, not what is going to happen to me, but what's going to happen to everything, what's going to happen to the universe. Now, those of you who are physicists, forgive my basic understanding of science, but I understand the following, at least two options in terms of how scientists think the, the universe is, is going to end up. There are kind of two views. One is, and it's fairly proven this, that the universe is expanding and that it will continue to expand, but it will expand like a rubber band. And you keep pulling a rubber band until it reaches a point where you let it go and it suddenly contracts. And the whole idea is the universe began in a big bang, it's been expanding ever since, and then what will happen is it will come together and it will stop and just go back to that infinite small dot. So basically everything's going to be wiped out. The other option behind that, and scientists say, don't worry, it's billions of years before that happens, so we're okay. But we're thinking big picture here. The other is that the universe won't contract. It will just keep continuing to expand, and it will keep expanding and keep expanding until space gets so stretched, a bit like my mind when I think about this, that space gets so stretched that it, it can't stay warm and it becomes cold and uh, everything dies. Now, I've not seen, and you can correct me if this is wrong, but I've not seen a, a single prediction from a scientific point of view which suggests anything other than it's all doomed. It's, it's going to get too cold or it's going to get too hot, it's going to be too tight, it's going to be too big. And that's just the way that it is. Well, the Christian view of the universe is very different. Paul's view of the universe is very different. And incidentally, when people say, well, Paul and the people then didn't have the kind of knowledge that we do, to some extent that that's true, but to another extent it's not. I'm reading a letter just now called uh, From Arnobius to the Heathen, and it's about some letter. It's about 100 pages long and 184 pages long, and it's written about 200 years after this. It's written a long time ago, 17, 1800 years ago, and Arnobius discusses, amongst other things, nuclear physics. He discusses the expansion of the universe. He discusses uh, atoms and so on. They were dealing with a lot of these issues. The Greeks had these, the idea about the universe consisting of atoms and so on. Their detailed scientific knowledge was, of course, not the same as ours has been through the development of, of science in the Western world over the past 300 years. But they, they were aware of different arguments about atheism and different arguments about materialism and so on. And in that context, Paul is writing to people and he says, no, the universe is destined for glory and Christians are predestined to share in and witness to that glory. God's plan for the universe is not for it to wind up, not for it to be blown up, not for it to shrink into nothing, 
not for it to be a cold, empty, meaningless, and dark place. God's plan is to restore harmony and unity to the universe. He's going to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And I think that's a, a, an amazing statement. It's an amazing understanding, and I think it is part of the picture in which we have to get the background of our life. The philosopher Bertrand Russell, the great atheist philosopher, uh, said once that you, meaning you and I, human beings, you are just a blob of carbon floating from one meaningless existence to another. The Christian view is vastly, vastly different. Verse 11, in Him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. So, God's plan is to do that. How He does it is through His people. God's great plan is to restore harmony and unity to the universe, and the way He's going to do that is through bringing sinful human beings who have rebelled against Him into a renewed relationship with Him, adopting us as His daughters and sons, making us the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, and through us changing the whole universe. And he says, this is not up to you to do. Paul says to the Ephesians, you've been appointed to do it. You are in this city, probably about a similar size to the city of Dundee. Ephesus probably had about 150,000 people in it. It was an important trade route and so on. But the the Christians would have felt very small and insignificant in that city and small and insignificant in the Roman Empire. And if they had any concept at all of the vastness of the universe, even smaller and more insignificant in that. But God says that He has appointed, He has appointed us, He's appointed them and as, as He has appointed us to be part of this new heavens and this new earth. Colossians 1 verse 12, the same word is used when it says, in Him we are chosen here in verse 11. In Colossians 1 verse 12, he says, He has qualified you, He has chosen you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life. It's the idea of appointed. And that's a tremendous thought. It's a tremendous idea that God has appointed us to share in this. It's not, when we do it, when we do it, it's all about me we think, well, we have to do this, or we have to earn this, or we have to make this happen. But when you reverse that, and as Paul does with the Ephesians here, when God says, I have appointed you, I have chosen you, that changes everything. Now, how do we know that? Uh, in verse 12, it says, we were the first to hope in Christ. We hoped in Christ. Now, I think he particularly is writing there about Paul. He's saying, we the Jews were the first to hope in Christ. And he he later on goes to talk about how the Jews and Gentiles are the same, uh, those who hope in Christ, that the Gentiles have been brought in as well. The question then is, how do you know that you are appointed? How do you know that you belong? How do you know that you are part of this plan? You know not by looking at yourself, seeing how good you are, seeing how religious you are, seeing how clever you are or whatever. You know by looking at Christ. You know in terms of your attitude to Christ. The trouble with so many of us psychologically and emotionally is we just can't get away from ourselves. We are condemned by other people, 
and we are condemned by our own hearts, and we can't get away from it. Everything we hear from God, we hear through the filter of our own experience, we hear through the filter of our own perceptions of ourselves, and so we distort what God says. The key issue that we have is not our attitude to ourselves, or in some sense it's not even who we are, but our attitude to Jesus Christ, what we think of Jesus Christ. You'll notice in verse 11 it says, it's in Him we were chosen. You'll notice that it's uh, also in Him that the purpose of His will is worked out. It's there. It has all to do with Jesus. How can we be sure that we will not fail? That's another problem that many Christians face when we say, well, God is doing this and God is doing that, but I as a Christian am struggling. I'm having a really hard time. I'm not coping with things. I'm battling with doubt. I'm battling with fears. I'm battling with illness. I I can't understand this. I can't grasp this. I'm just no use. I'm going to fail. Why won't you fail? Because in verse 11, it says you've been predestined. Now, it's not just the idea of being chosen. The, the word used carries this, a better translation, I think, is you are made heirs. You've been chosen as God's portion. It's a bit like you're in a family and you've been adopted into that family. How do you know that you will stay in that family? How do you know that you will be cared for? Because your parents chose you, they adopted you. They've, they've taken you on board. And here, it's not just a relationship. You could have a relationship where you say, okay, we'll look after you for a while. We'll foster you for a while. You behave yourself. You can stay in the house. You don't behave yourself. You're gone. But you get to a point where in, in, in an adoptive situation or in a fostering situation where maybe the, the parents in that home say, no, we're going to adopt you. Whatever happens, we're going to adopt you. And that means when you misbehave, we, we're not going to throw you out of the house. That means when things aren't going always as well as we would like them to, we're not just going to say, oh, well, let's get rid of that one. Let's get another one in. And that's exactly the same language that the Bible uses in terms of us. How do we know that we won't fail? If we decide to follow Jesus Christ, how do we know that we we won't get things wrong? And I tell you, this is a tremendous comfort uh, when you realize it's because of who God is and what God has done for us. I was speaking in Edinburgh at the festival this week at an outreach done by Charlotte Chapel, and I'll be honest with you, I thought I was really rubbish, and I'm not just saying that out of a false sense of humility, I don't do that, and I just, at the end of it, I was going, oh, you idiot, first of all, you spoke far too long, and some of you will go, yeah, that's not unusual, about time you learned, but, um, you know, I just, oh, I got that wrong, and then there was just one or two other things, I thought, I got that wrong, and I got that wrong, and Actually, I was actually quite angry at myself, and then I'm walking away and thinking about it all, and I go home, and there's a couple of letters from folks who were there who had been um, really helped, a couple of known Christians who had one lady wrote a beautiful thing. She said, it was not what I expected at all. I don't know how to describe it. I wish you'd spoken longer. Um, you can tell she wasn't a Christian. <laughs> I, could wish, I wish you'd spoken longer. She said, I don't know what happened, but the penny dropped. And I still maintain that I got it wrong and I didn't do that particularly well in terms of speaking. 
But the point was simply this. It doesn't matter at one level because it's not about me, it's about God. It's about what God does. And all of us can have that, that we can know that. We've been chosen as God's people, God's heritage, God's possession. We belong to Him. That's really important. Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, for the Lord's portion is His people. This is my lot, he says. They are mine. They are bought. Paul is making it quite clear. We can be sure because our belonging to God depends not on chance, nor ultimately even on our choice, but on God Himself. Now, I know there are problems with this, some logical, some emotional, some difficult, some perhaps unsolvable, but we are called simply to believe it, not necessarily to understand it all. It's difficult for us because many of us have grown up in an environment where acceptance is dependent upon performance. And it's really hard for us to grasp that of all places in the church, we'd think, well, that would surely be the case. Surely if you behave yourself, then God will accept you more. Uh, I was sent, uh, I was tweeted this morning, what a ridiculous word. I was tweeted this morning with uh, a quote from Bono, where Bono says, it used to really disturb me that the Bible is full of murderers and adulterers and mercenaries and so on. Now, he said, it gives me great hope. And actually, Bono gets it spot on. Somebody in, in response to that tweet had said, yes, but God calls us to behave better. And I just thought, yeah, but you're still not quite getting it. It's not about our behavior and what we've done, but what Christ has done. I think that um, we see this in the light of God bringing everything in His plan to pass. We can disobey God's will, but we cannot ultimately frustrate it. Acts 4 verse 27, one of the greatest sins of all, crucifying Jesus. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did it, but they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They conspired to do what God had planned anyway. They are responsible for what they do. They are responsible for how they behaved. But God can work all things for His great purpose in seeing the universe united under one head in Christ. That's why this heritage of God, if we, if we are Christians, we're saying we're the heritage of God, we're the possession of God. Acts 20 verse 28 says this, to, uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders, Paul says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which He bought with His own blood. Read in Corinthians, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. You may not like the idea of being bought. I love it. I love the idea that my value has been determined by the Son of God loving me and giving Himself for me. So, God works His plan through His people, and then God does it so that we can praise. It's for the praise of His glory. Now, there's some great, loads of great passages particularly in Isaiah. Let me give you these two. Isaiah 45. Do not be afraid, says God, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That you might be, says Paul, for the praise of His glory. And then in Isaiah 
Oops, on the next one. Isaiah 45, the wild animals honor me, says the Lord, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. There's this extraordinary teaching that God formed a people for Himself that we might glorify Him. As we said in the question from the Catechism, our purpose is to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever. I'm not a great fan of mission statements, but if you want a mission statement for a church, and if you want a mission statement for your life, then this is surely as this, that you might be for the praise of His glory, for the praise of His glory. That going back to where we came in about um, what we do and who we are, it's all about me. No, it's not. It's for the praise of God's glory. That we sing and we pray and we preach and we serve and we make cups of coffee and we have people round to our house and we share the gospel and we heal and we do all these things not so that we can get glory, but, that, but so that men would see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. The trouble is with so much religion, and the reason why so much contemporary Christianity is so weak and woolly is because we've turned it to all being about us, and there is God, and He's got to serve us, and God's got to give us this, and God's got to give us that. It's just the wrong way round. This is a much better, it's a much better way. It's a better way because it's truer. It's a better way it makes more sense. It's a better way because it's more liberating. It is about us being formed for the praise of the glory of Christ. And you might look at yourself and you might say, me, how do I glorify Christ? Look at me, I'm nothing, I'm nobody. But God takes the nothing and God takes the nobodies of this world and He glorifies His name through us. I think it's wonderful that this whole idea of, of being chosen in every aspect. In Revelation 7, we're, we're told about how we will have new bodies. We'll live in a renewed universe. Our characters will be holy. We'll be perfectly happy. There'll be no more death, sorrow, or pain. The new creation will be a world of divine beauty and love. And God said, I, I, I want you to be part of that. And that is just a vastly, vastly important thing. And I, I want to encourage those of us who are Christians, whatever our personal circumstances just now, whatever our personal emotions, whatever our depressions or joys or anything else, just to back off from ourselves a little bit and just to think, wait a minute, I've been formed for the glory of God. Not for the glory of anybody else, not for my own glory, but for the glory of God. And a simple prayer to pray for a Christian is just simply this, Lord, glorify your name through me. Use me for that. And if you're not a Christian, I would suggest to you that there is no greater purpose in life than being able to serve and to glorify God. And I would encourage you to try and get to know Him. But let me just finish by saying what the, the purpose of all this, this, this understanding, if you like, of our identity being in Christ and God having this great plan which will not be thwarted and God making us His heirs, His, His sons and daughters by adoption into His family. How does that help us just now? Let me mention three things. Firstly, guidance. How do we know? Here's a problem with guidance. 
we spend a lot of our time trying to work out what God's will is for each decision in our life. Who should I marry? What job should I do? Where should I go? And so on. Now, in one sense, that's fine. But in another sense, imagine if you do that in, for exactly everything. You know, there's, uh, I can see there's some cake and biscuits up at the end. Are you going to go up at the end and go and say, okay, Lord, guide me. Should I take a cake or should I take a biscuit? No, you're not. You're going to ask Morag, which is nicer, and she will tell you. <laughs> or you're going to be told, no, you've already had 20, no more. So, you know, you, we, you, can, you can get so caught up in terms of guidance. Should I, should I go here? Should I go there? That you drive yourself mad. I would suggest this, that whilst it's not wrong to look for short-term guidance about specific issues, that should always be done against the background of knowing the long-term will of God. One man puts it this way, instead of seeking specific verses for turning points in our lives, we'll be far better equipped to make sound decisions if we have a grasp of God's revealed will for the Christian, for the church, and for the world. In other words, there's a spiritual maturing which gives us a good foundation for making biblically informed decisions. And that, that's why it's really important to have, again, in this background, the glory of God, the glory of Christ is why we are here. Secondly, lifestyle, how we live. Nations and individuals fight because to them there is only this material world. That's how the sense of values is formed. We do not fight because we are looking for the inheritance that is above. The glory of God is the revelation of God. To live to the praise of the glory of His grace is both to worship Him ourselves by our words and deeds as the gracious God He is and to cause others to see and to praise Him too. That's why we are here. That's what we're supposed to do. It's maybe not the answer we would expect or even want, but I put a quote there from John Stott who um, died a few days ago and just is one of the best Christian teachers ever, I think. He says this in commenting on this, yet such Christian talk comes into violent collision with the man-centeredness and self-centeredness of the world. Fallen man imprisoned in his own little ego has an almost boundless confidence in the power of his will and an almost insatiable appetite for the praise of his own glory. But the people of God have at least begun to be turned inside out. The new society has new values and new ideals for God's people are God's possession who live by God's will and for God's glory. God's actions bring praise to his glorious grace. Christians do exactly the same thing that we might be for the praise of His glory. God gives us eternal life and in return receives from us glory as we glorify Him. As we live as the family of God, it enhances the glory and reputation of God. Think about what that means. What people think about a person becomes their reputation. God's reputation increases as we think more highly of Him and as we persuade others to do so. Unity and harmony and love and so on being exemplified in the church bring glory and honor to God. So when we have disunity and disharmony, then we're undermining the reputation of God and taking away from the glory of God. Instead of see how they love one another, we see, see how they fight one another, see how they can't stand one another, see how they can't live together amongst one another. And so then people look and say, some God, some people, some God. I think lifestyle is incredible in this. And then the last thing is assurance. What can be greater than knowing 
that God thought of me, that God thought of you in the counsel of his own will, that God not only made the plan, but he saw us in it. It is God who is working out his purpose. That is why the gates of hell cannot prevail his church. That is why the most outrageous statement is also true. And the outrageous statement is there's nothing you can do that can make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. God loves us. Philippians 1 verse 6, because of that, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's why Paul, in probably, for me, the most stunning passage in the whole Bible, Romans chapter 8, I'm going to finish with reading this. That's why with that background, Paul can then say this. And let me finish by reading from Romans 8 verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also glorified. He also called, rather. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship? or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is too big. It's too much. It's too vast. We can't get our heads around it. It's too impossible. There are too many questions. Help us. How could you love us? How could you choose us and not do so dependent upon what we are? How could you take such as we are and call us to be your daughters and your sons? Lord, we bless you, though we do not understand it, that that is the case. We bless you that your love of us is not dependent upon our performance for you, but that we want to serve you because you've loved us so much. Lord, we ask that each one of us here as we come to you, that we would be aware of that. We failed so many times, yet you call us and you love us. We pray for any who don't know you as yet, who wonder, what is this? What is this? Who is this God? That, Lord, they would come to you and seek you and find you and be found by you. We thank you for your words of encouragement to us, that as our hope is in Christ, so all things work together for the good of those who love you. In your name, amen. 
You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.